You know, sometimes I get up here to preach right after the choir sings an anthem like that, and I say, all right, we've been to church, let's go home. Thank you all. Thank you all for that. Let's, let's pray together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for bringing us here to this place at this time. And God, as we gather here, we ask that you'd be with us. We're grateful for your word and and for the opportunity you give us to journey through your story together and to live out that story now and today. God, as we open your scriptures, we ask that you'd give us ears to hear what you have for us. And I ask that you would take my words and use them for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. My wife Haley and I spent this last week, a better part of this last week, with our kids in San Diego. Now, my mom jokes that whenever we visit, whenever we visit, her house moves from being a three-bedroom house with two bathrooms to a five-bedroom house. And she jokes because our bags are everywhere. My toys from 30 years ago somehow come out of the cabinets and are spread out all over the place. And in the middle of the night, you never know who you are going to find sleeping on the couch. We just kind of spread out wherever we want to be. Now, the first morning we were there, I went on a walk with my mom and we walked through my elementary school. We walked up the same stairs that I used to walk up every day as a kid. We we walked on the same grass field where my soccer teams practiced when I was a kid. We walked past the kindergarten playground that still has the, the tricycle track painted on the ground of the playground that I used to ride the opposite way around as the rest of the class. On one hand, it was amazing how little has changed in my parents' neighborhood. And on the other, I don't really know that many people who still live in my parents' neighborhood. And and most of the houses that my friends grew up in look nothing like the houses that, that I grew up playing in. Or, or the yards that I grew up playing, everything has changed in their neighborhood. We were in San Diego for a, a dear friend of ours' wedding, uh, Eileen. She actually spoke at my, my installation here uh, last year. Uh, I was a groomsman. Ella was a flower girl. Our oldest was a flower girl. And, and Haley read scripture. Now, we've known Eileen for a, a long time, and so she's, she's been a friend through different life stages with us. So her wedding was a, a bit of a reunion for us. There were, there were former youth group kids that, that Eileen and I had and led together um, from two different churches. There were people who served as mentors to us both. Mutual friends traveled from all over the country, some of whom Haley and I hadn't seen for years. This was the, the third time that our daughter Ella had been a flower girl in the last year. And when, when she found out that all three of the brides were going to be there, she, she claimed out, All of my brides are going to be in the same place. There was a moment during the reception where she was dancing with the groom from the first wedding. My daughter was dancing with the groom from the first wedding. And I was talking with his wife. The bride is one of my former middle school kids. Is in seminary preparing to be a a pastor. And I officiated their, their wedding in Colorado this last year. And I looked over and Haley was talking with a group of friends from a completely different part of our life. It was a collision of worlds where our our, our past, present, and future all meant, met in in one place. So this morning, we're at a place in the story that's, that's a similar sort of collision, but on a much, much bigger scale. 
The Israelite people had been living in exile for about 70 years and the Babylonian Empire, the, the empire who had taken them into exile, had fallen to Persia. And the Persian king, Cyrus, asked about 50,000 of the exiles to return to their homeland. Now, most likely, the people who, who returned had only heard stories of Jerusalem. Probably when they overheard their parents or their grandparents talking about the good old days. When they arrive in Jerusalem, what they see probably didn't quite look like the picture that was painted by their parents and grandparents. They saw overgrown fields. They saw ruins of buildings, neglected homes, and rubble of a demolished temple. They were tasked with rebuilding a community, with, with, with repopulating and starting over again in a new community. But, but the world around them looked nothing like it did when their ancestors left Jerusalem years before. So prophets like Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel talked about life in exile, encouraged those who were in exile, and gave hope for an eventual return home to Jerusalem. And now they've returned, and we see leaders like Ezra and Haggai and Nehemiah lead the people back and begin rebuilding. Now Haggai is called to remind the people of their identity and to encourage them as they rebuild a world that really revolved around the temple. In the first chapter of Haggai, he tells the people that, that God had had enough of their excuses. The world around them might look completely different, but God was still sovereign, God was still in control, and there was still work that needed to be done. In the second chapter, what we're about to read together, Haggai addresses the people's discontent. People were tired. This had been hard work. They had grown pessimistic. The world we live in, is, it's hard. It doesn't look like what we thought it would look like. In their minds, at best, at best, they'd be able to build a poor imitation of what Solomon had built years before in the glory days. So why even try? Why even try if it's not going to look as good as it, as it used to? Then at the start of chapter 2, we read this. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel. That's what to say. Zerubbabel. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace 
declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the story of the exiles return to Jerusalem reminds us to be thankful for the past, to be committed to what God is doing now and today, and to be hopeful for what's coming in the future. And and we can be all of those things at the same time. All at the same time. It's an important reminder for us in in, in the church today, especially here in the United States and in in the Western world. As Christianity declines and does this and the influence of the church declines and and kind of does this throughout throughout our, our culture, we often hear phrases like this. Remember when Sunday school had 400 kids in it every Sunday? How come there's sports on Sunday now? Or remember when, when Sunday was reserved for going to church and then going to brunch at grandma's? What happened? I miss those Sunday pot roasts. It's not that having a lot of kids in our programs or setting a, a day for worship and family is bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. But when we get stuck glorifying the past, we miss out on what God is doing in the present. It's also just as easy to get stuck fantasizing about the future. In churches that are overly focused on the future, you might hear something like this. Why do we need to feed the homeless? Why do we need to go on mission trips to to build houses? We shouldn't be concerning ourselves with filling empty stomachs or, or building homes. We need to focus on lost souls. So some of our churches place a premium on saving the lost at the expense of loving their neighbors, of taking care of the orphans and and the widows, or making disciples that will make a difference in this world. All things that Jesus asked us to do. Now I know that's a bit of an extreme, but we need to remember that, that God's kingdom is both coming in the future and is already here in our midst. We need to hear the same sort of reminder that Ezra and Haggai share with their friends. That there is a balance between recognizing the past, being hopeful for the future, and being committed to what God has for us today. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how God calls the Israelites to seek the shalom of the place where they live. To seek the the wholeness, the well-being, the peace of their neighbors in Babylon, their captors in Babylon. And that then when their neighbors thrive, that they too would thrive, that they too would find shalom. Well now, two or or maybe three generations later, later, as they get ready to return, as they're, they're heading back to Jerusalem, we see some evidence in Ezra that they were living as God commanded. In the Ezra passage that Christine read earlier, we're told that neighbors rallied around those who were going back. That, that, that neighbors sent them. The neighbors gave them gifts to take back to their homeland. They gave them silver and gold and livestock. They even took a free will offering. They're prepared. The people are prepared to rebuild, to resettle. And after a while, the foundation of the temple is, is rebuilt, it's cleaned off, and the people gather around and they sing a psalm that had been sung by their people for generations. It's a lyric that's worked its way into many of our, our more contemporary hymns. 
in songs today as well. We, we, we know it. God is good. His love endures forever. They remembered their past. They remembered their identity as they gathered and worshipped around the temple. They recognized that they wouldn't be who they were if it weren't for the past. And so they sing out a song of gratitude, a song of thanksgiving. So we too need to be grateful for our past, for those who came before us, for those who laid the foundation of where we are standing today. But there's also a strong warning in this part of the story. Right away, as they're singing that, that, that hymn, that psalm that everybody knows, there's a group of priests who can't bear to see a worship service take place in an incomplete temple. And who knows? Maybe those priests heard the way that the song was being sung, and they said, ooh, I don't know. That's, that's not the way that we used to sing it. They start weeping, mourning that the present doesn't look like the past. Ezra tells us that the noise was so loud that you, you couldn't distinguish between the shouts of joys and the weeping. It was a community torn in two, some shouting for joy and some weeping about the change. Does that sound familiar? Some of us today might be in the same place the morning priests were. We can't quite wrap our heads around the changes in the world and the changes in the church. And if you are in that place, my, my hope for you is that you would hear the truth of Ezra 3.11. God is good. God's love endures forever past, present, and future. As the work of the temple continues, the people start getting antsy. The work is hard and it's just taking too long. The complaints and weeping took place that we just talked about in Ezra. They took place about 15 years before the words we just read from Haggai. And there hadn't been as much progress as they had hoped there would be. They had only finished the first phase of the master plan. So Haggai delivers a, a message of encouragement, says, hey, don't, don't be discouraged. And it comes on the last day of the Feast of, of the Tabernacles which was a, a public holiday when, when everybody celebrated that year's harvest. They kind of brought it all together, and they had a big, a big party, and recognizing the past, recognizing that God had provided for their ancestors when their ancestors were wandering in the wilderness. The crowds would have wanted an update on the temple. T- tell us, give us some progress. Where do we stand? And they'd be disappointed that it was taking so long. So Haggai speaks of God's promise, of God's presence, using familiar words and familiar phrases. The call to be strong would have reminded them of Joshua and of the words that David shared with his son Solomon. There was a reminder that God was with them, reminding them that they weren't alone. That phrase, I am with you, is used over a hundred times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It would have been hard, or would have been heard, excuse me, as the, the ultimate reminder of God's faithfulness to His people. So when they hear, I am with you, they, they, they picture God being with Abraham. They picture God being with Isaac, with, with Jacob, 
with the words being shared with Moses, with, with God being with their ancestors along the way. But they'd also remember the promise that God gave more recently through Jeremiah, where after 70 years they would be delivered back to Jerusalem and given the task to, to, to restart Jerusalem. They would remember, oh, God is, is indeed faithful. And, and it wasn't just way long ago. He's been faithful just recently. We're, we're here because of God's faithfulness. That phrase, I, I am with you, it carried some, some immense weight. And it would have helped them commit to the work that was right in front of them. Hey, don't stop. God is with you. Keep going. God, God is with you, no matter how difficult the work is ahead of you. Now, when we hear that phrase... God with us, what do we think of? Emmanuel. We think of Christmas. We, we, we think of God being with us in the person of Christ, Jesus' birth, Jesus' ministry. And then if we, we fast forward through his ministry to him leaving his disciples and saying, you will not be alone, for I am sending an advocate to be with you, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we might not face the same sort of struggles and difficulties that the people of Haggai's day did, but we still struggle. And when we do, sometimes it's, it's easier to play the highlight reels of the past or to push fast forward and say, let's get to the future. But God is calling us to be faithful today to what God has put in front of us. And we need to be reminded that God is faithful to us. Today, I want to invite us all to remember that, that God is with us, that God is with you, that God is with me now and today. As Haggai continues, his language shifts toward the future. We, we see him use will quite a bit. In a little while, the world and everything in it and around it will be shaken to its core. Haggai reminds the people that even though there is work to be done now and today, that there is a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. Rebuilding the temple was an important part of establishing God's presence in their community. But there was something more. God's kingdom was and is both being built in the present and in the future. Uh, years later, this part of Haggai is quoted by the, the author of Hebrews, and, and the Hebrews author goes on to say, even though the earth and heaven will shake, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we should worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The encouragement here is to hold fast to what's unshakable. To keep a, a posture where we are always looking forward toward what is coming. Where God is constantly making things new even when the world is crumbling around us. It's the same sort of message that Jesus gives Peter, James, and John when they go up the mountainside and witness his transfiguration. They're, they're not quite sure where their journey with Jesus would lead. So they see a, a glimpse of the big picture. They get to see a, a little bit of, of the future of what's to come. And then they hear God's voice. This is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's the same thing that we hear at Jesus' baptism. 
And, and I love Peter's response to the whole experience. He gets really excited. And he says, I'm going to build a building. Three of them, actually. I'm, I'm, building, I'm building a tabernacle for you, a tabernacle for, for Elijah, and one, one for Moses. And, and Jesus says, get up. You've got work to do. Don't be afraid. It's essentially a reminder to, to hold fast to what's unshakable. And to continue the work that started a long, long time ago. That was the challenge to Peter, James, and John. That's our challenge today as well. Now when we talk about this collision of the past and the present and, and, and the future in the church, it's not always easy to articulate the significance of it all. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a big picture idea. But the hope of the future gives us reason to participate in what God is doing now and today. And much of that work wouldn't be possible if the foundation wasn't laid by those who came before us. So, my hope for us as a church is that we can be thankful for what God has done, be committed to what God is still doing, and be hopeful for what God will do. Can we commit to that? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the truth that you are with us. Thank you for what you have done, what you continue to do, and what you promise to do in the future. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.